help, I don't have my program. <laughs> Figures of decadence. And I would like to introduce uh, Christopher Reed, who is Associate Professor of English and Visual Culture here at Penn State, who is going to, in turn, uh, introduce the panelists. In or about December 1910, human character changed. Nancy asked me to use that quotation to open this uh, part of the program. And of course, she's done such a wonderful job uh, arranging for this whole program today that I would do anything that Nancy asked at this point. But it must also be said that it's not hard to get a Wolf scholar to quote uh, Virginia Woolf. Nothing really makes us happier. Um, because her writing combines, as I think we all hope to, both lively wit and deep insight. And so here's the risk. I continue. Wolf goes on from, from that remark to say, in life one can see the change, if I may use a homely illustration, in the character of one's cook. The Victorian cook lived like a leviathan in her lower depths, formidable, silent, obscure, inscrutable. The Georgian cook is a creature of sunshine and fresh air, in and out of the drawing room, now to borrow the Daily Herald, now to ask advice about a hat. Do you ask for more solemn instances of the power of the human race to change? Read the Agamemnon and see whether, in process of time, your sympathies are not almost entirely with Clytemnestra. That's the end of the quote. <laughs> Thus, Wolf encapsulates the ideas uh, laid out um, in, I think, today's symposium. We, we went from the fashion, from the, the hat, um, to, the, to Clytemnestra, um, and particularly the ideas that animate this afternoon's panel, which emphasize the importance of decadence, our theme today, as a counterpoint to notions of progress at the turn of the century. Changes that um, were cast by beneficial, as beneficial by many people, industrialization, urbanization, that kind of thing, um, one might add social, the social mobility of cooks and their interest in hats and newspapers, um, were cast by others then and since as portents, portents of the decline of civilization. This session explores how decadence at the turn of the century functioned as metaphor, as a rhetorical figure linked to related images of degeneration, devolution, decay, inferiority, loss, and apocalypse. At the same time, this session examines how discourses about decadence crystallized around certain abstract figures, woman, Jew, colonial subject, all those Clytemnestras who suddenly came to seem so inevitable and compelling. Finally, this session considers how such real life figures as Sarah Bernhardt and Eric Satie came to be regarded by contemporaries as emblematic of the idea of decadence. And so, without further ado, we'll turn to our first talk, which is, in fact, about Eric Satie, um, and will be delivered to us by Professor Mary E. Davis um, from uh, Case Western Reserve University. Professor Davis uh, holds a PhD in musicology from Harvard University, and she is currently associate professor and chair of the music department uh, at Case Western, where she teaches courses on topics including modernism, 20th century music, world music, and American popular music. She is also the Associate Director of Case Western's Center for the Humanities, and she serves as University uh, Liaison and Advisor to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. Oh, there's more. I, I go into detail about this, because this is the interesting stuff. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, in this latter capacity, she has uh, helped to oversee the annual American Music Masters Series, which honors a pioneering figure of American popular music, and then they have a day-long conference uh, on her campus and a major tribute concert. Can you imagine how exciting this is? Recent honorees have been Jerry Lee Lewis and Les Paul, and she has to return to Cleveland right after the panel tonight because uh, tomorrow they're doing Metallica and a bunch of other people. Um, uh, in her spare time, uh, her research focuses on the relationship of music to fashion. Her first book, um, called Classic Chic, Music, Fashion, and Modernism, was published in 2006 by the University of California Press, and she has published widely on such fashion designers as Paul Poiret and Chanel. She is also the author, author of, among other things, a biography of Eric Satie, which obviously relates to her topic today, but I felt that I should also tell you that in, during the 1980s, she worked as a tax lobbyist uh, in Washington, D.C., and it's that week, so if people have questions about that afterwards. <laughs> um, but, but for now, we will be concentrating on her paper, Satie's Decadent Simplicity. that very, very nice introduction. It's true, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony has come back to Cleveland and will be taking place there tomorrow. So I'm glad it was not scheduled for today so that I could be with all of you. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about Eric Satie. And there he is, tidy beard, such as it, as it is with his hair, not so much, wire rim glasses, nondescript black suit, and starched white shirt. Add the accessories, he never left home without a proper bowler hat and an umbrella. And he seems the perfect turn-of-the-century Parisian bureaucrat. In fact, this appearance as a timid mid-level functionary was calculated, the last in a series of sartorial stances that Satie adopted through the course of his career. These wardrobe shifts, designed to articulate moments of change in his compositional style, run the gamut. The fascination with self-preservation was in place by the time Satie, born in 1866 and seen here about two years later, in the northern French harbor town of Enfleur, had moved to Paris to study piano at the prestigious Conservatoire National de Musique. Photos from this period show an earnest young fellow with an artistic sensibility and a bob haircut, hardly suggesting the young man who was deemed by his teacher worthless and the laziest student in the conservatoire. Dismissed from school, he eventually found his way to the lofty reaches of Montmartre, where he worked through the 1880s as a piano player in a variety of counterculture haunts frequented by artists, musicians, and other aspirers to the avant-garde. Yes, thank you. Okay, now that we're technologically set up, uh, his offbeat appearance during these years was keyed to the vie de bohème he pursued at the famous Chat Noir Cabaret. Long hair, top coat and Windsor tie, dark trousers and a frock coat. As his friend Francis Jourdain, the decorative artist and furniture maker, recalled, he was a dandy, quote, of the sort who, as you might imagine, notes the dictates of fashion only so he can violate them. These were the years of Satie's earliest success, including the composition of what remains his best known work, Trois Gymnopédies for Piano, completed in 1888. And this is just a page of that musical score. 
You may think you don't know Sachi or that perhaps you don't know these pieces, but I guarantee that you've heard them somewhere. If not in a concert hall, then definitely in an elevator or supermarket aisle. Possibly in this Grammy-winning version by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In the early uh, 1890s, to carry on with this little biography, Satie had the only romantic liaison that we know of with the painter Suzanne Valadon, seen here in a self-portrait. She was the mother of the artist Maurice Utrillo. Valadon painted a sympathetic portrait of Satie, but their affair was brief and dramatic. Among other things, he allegedly threatened to throw her out of the window of his tiny one-room Montmartre apartment, which was on the first floor, so. <laughs> in the wake of the romance, Satie changed gears and, tongue firmly in cheek, founded his own church, the Metropolitan Church of Jesus the Conductor, for which he served as Parsier, which is a sort of medieval priest, and seemingly sole adept. And here is a, an image of him from that phase. During this period, Satie devoted himself to the composition of medievalizing works that parodied sacred music, including an organ mass. And he roamed Paris in priestly cassocks and sandals. And a little is called the first prelude of the Nazarene and it gives you a, a sense of the meditative quality of the compositions from this phase. By the mid-1890s, Satie had moved on and out of Paris. Strapped for cash, he was evicted from his modest room in Montmartre and he decamped to the suburb of Arcueil, just east of the city. Circumstances notwithstanding, he was in the midst of a creative burst, dividing his time between composing groundbreaking piano works that included bits and pieces of popular tunes and actually writing popular songs for one of the most acclaimed singers of the day, Paulette Darty. 
there you see her, she was known as the queen of the slow waltz. For Darty, he produced his, uh, his only best-selling tunes, including the hit song, Je Te Veux. gives you a flavor for a little bit of the popularizing style that Satie was venturing into. Along with this, he entered yet another new sartorial phase, using most of a small inheritance he received to purchase seven identical chestnut-colored velvet suits with matching hats, thus establishing the uniform that he would wear for the next decade, the outfit that earned him the nickname, the Velvet Gentleman. The turn of the century was a crucial time for Satie as he groped toward a new compositional style that would yoke elements of popular music to the traditions of French art music. Not simply visiting the venues where popular music was, uh, was heard, he immersed himself in cafes, cabarets, and cafe concerts. He participated there as a creative and active performer. And as a composer of both popular song and medievalizing melodies, he would seem to have been perfectly positioned to create a new kind of music that was an amalgam of styles, and that in addition was at once inherently modern and identifiably French. This was a goal he shared with other French composers around the turn of the century, many of whom, weary of the pervasive influence of Richard Wagner and still stinging from the cultural defeats that came along with the Franco-Prussian War, were seeking vindication. Satie's experiments from this time include the remarkable composition Trois Morceaux en forme de poire, three pieces in the form of a pair, which is in fact a group of seven pieces that has nothing to do with pairs and everything to do with the popular music that he had been composing and performing for more than a decade. This work laid out a methodology for implicating cabaret tunes and popular songs into more conventional art music forms, but Satie's path to this new music required a significant detour. Looking for a way, as he described it, to break away from the Wagnerian adventure and create a music of our own without sauerkraut, he found himself back in school. Satie did not return to the conservatoire, but instead enrolled for classes in composition and music theory at the Schola Cantorum, an alternative music school founded in the 1890s by Charles Bordes, Alexandre Guimont, and Vincent Dandy, who you see here. In contrast to the conservatoire, where technical skill and virtuosity were prized above all, and 19th century music was the focus, the Schola Cantorum emphasized artistry and a broad slate of subjects, extending from medieval chant to contemporary composition. 
Satie, his career as a composer already well underway, took what he described as the humble and courageous step of returning to school as a way of addressing what he perceived were gaps in his training. He focused on the rudiments of music, studying counterpoint, form and analysis, and basic harmony, and he excelled. The student, once singled out as the laziest in the conservatoire, now adapted the blunt view that, quote, there is a musical language and one must learn it. Not surprisingly, Satie's dedication of purpose was reflected in a new look. He abandoned the velvet gentleman getup that signaled his association with bohemians and entertainers and adopted the bourgeois functionary costume that he would adhere to until his death in 1925. Study at the Schola Cantorum opened new worlds of composition to Satie, and the successful completion of the program his diploma in counterpoint was awarded with the distinction très bien in 1908, gave him credibility and a confidence boost. Now fluent in the basics, including the rigorous techniques of chorale harmonization and fugal writing, he worked to accommodate these elements of serious composition into his own quirky style. A spate of creative activity ensued, and in 1911, Satie at last found himself at a breakthrough point. In January that year, the composer Maurice Ravel showcased Satie's compositions at a concert of the newly formed Société Independente Musicale, an organization devoted to the presentation of works by living French composers. Ravel focused particularly on Satie's compositions from the 1880s and 90s, many of which had never been heard in a concert performance. An unsigned note in the program positioned Satie for the first, but hardly the last time, as a genial precursor of modern French music, who occupied, quote, a truly exceptional place in the history of contemporary art. And I'll quote just a little bit more of this. On the margins of his own epoch, this isolated figure long ago wrote several brief pages that are those of a precursor of genius. These works, unfortunately few in number, surprise one through their prescience and modern vocabulary and through their quasi-prophetical character of certain harmonic discoveries. With today's performance, Maurice Ravel will prove the esteem in which the most advanced composers hold this creator who, a quarter century ago, was already speaking the audacious musical idiom of tomorrow. So, Suddenly, Satie, who had spent more than 20 years laboring in comparative obscurity, was in the public eye. Only weeks after this performance, a review by noted critic Michel Cavalcaresi praised Satie as an important forerunner of Debussy and Ravel himself. This was followed by a major article on Satie in the newly launched Revue Musicale SEM, published by the Société Internationale Musicale, which included a biographical overview, a portrait of the composer seen here by Count Antoine Rochefoucauld, and reprints of scores for a number of his early works. By December 1911, Satie's star had risen to the point where he was acclaimed by the London-based journal The Musical Times as the latest in a group of forward-looking composers that ran from Chopin to Debussy. At the same time that Satie was garnering this critical attention, a number of his works were seeing print for the first time, and this exposure was further enhanced when he began to write his own 
articles for the Revue Musicale SEM in 1912, launching his literary career with the now famous Memoirs of an Amnesiac, a collection of oddball observations that begins with the statements, everyone will tell you that I am not a musician. That is correct. From the very beginning of my career, I have classed myself as a phonometographer, whatever that is. So inspired by Satie's example were a group of critics and younger composers that they proposed he be honored as the Prince of Musicians. Demuring initially from this suggestion, these asses are completely ignorant, he insisted. He thought twice and accepted, reasoning that, quote, music needs a prince, and by God, she shall have one. A burst of compositional activity between 1912 and 1916 attests to the creative stimulus this attention inspired. Attention inspired. In these highly fruitful years, Satie turned his attention fully to his project of integrating high and low music. This had been initiated with the three pieces in the form of the pair. And he, most importantly, produced a series of bizarrely titled piano works that are now generally referred to as the humoristic piano suites. This series began in 1912 with flabby preludes for a dog and truly flabby preludes <laughs> for a dog. Continued in 1913 with an amazing group of six sets of pieces, and their titles are Automatic Descriptions, Dried Up Embryos, Sketches and Provocations of a Wooden Man, Chapters Turned Every Which Way, Old Sequins and Spoons, and Three Groups of Children's Pieces, given the overall title Enfantine. And I must say that the translation do, the translations do not fully capture the bizarreness, the oddness of, of those titles. The year 1914 brought three additional works, Secular and Instantaneous Hours, Three Waltzes of a Precious Dandy, and the album Sports and Diversions, or Sport et Divertissement. Often dismissed as simple and insignificant, these humoristic suites in fact constitute a radical reconception of musical composition in at least three major respects. First, on the plane of the music itself, they represent Satie's achievement of his primary goal, namely the creation of a new and identifiably French idiom that meaningfully blended medievalizing and popular impulses, esoteric and everyday musical styles. Second, these works implicate visual art and graphic design as an essential part of the musical composition, thus considerably expanding and deepening the expressive possibilities of a given work. In this regard, it's worth noting that Satie was an amateur artist himself. An idiosyncratic calligrapher, he filled endless sketchbooks and hundreds of small cards with imaginative drawings of subjects ranging from Gothic, cathed Gothic cathedrals to clipper ships and futuristic airplanes. Oops, somehow we went too far. There we go. Um, this is just an example of one of the many calling cards that he made. Uh, it's also worth noting that Satie insisted that musical evolution is always a hundred years behind pictorial evolution. Third, the humoristic suites all implicate text into the musical score, either as epigraphs or small narratives. 
These narrative texts are inserted between the staves, but they're not intended to be spoken or sung. This is a break with centuries of tradition in which words appeared in keyboard music only in titles or in performance directives, such as andante, pianissimo, forte, those kinds of, of uh, terms. Here too, Satie added a layer of expressive complexity and meaning to the musical work, along with most often a hefty dose of ironic humor. In short, the simple sound of Satie's humoristic suites masks his extremely sophisticated, entirely original, intricately multidisciplinary, and essentially modern compositional aesthetic. Nowhere is this decadent simplicity more pronounced than in the album of 20 short piano pieces entitled Spor et Divertissement, composed in the spring of 1914. Let's enter the world of this composition by listening to one of the brief pieces called La Balançoire, or The Swing. None of these pieces is over two thing you cannot know by simply hearing this piece is that like every one of the 20 pieces in this collection, it's matched to two specific works of art. A small graphic design, like this one that encapsulates the title or the topic in miniature, and secondly, a full page illustration. This unusual multimedia format was dictated by the man who commissioned the work, magazine publisher Lucien Vogel. And here you see him. He's now best known for having been the director of Vue magazine, the French precursor to America's Life magazine. Uh, but he was uh, very active in the world of publishing in Paris in the early part of the century. And in 1912, he began to publish the luxurious Parisian high style magazine, La Gazette du Bon Ton, which under a masthead proclaiming its devotion to art fashion and frivolity offered readers a variety of articles on culture and society, along with a set of exquisite hand-colored fashion plates in every issue. Sometime in 1913, Vogel approached Satie with the idea of creating a musical adaptation of his fashion magazine, complete with up-to-date illustrations depicting the latest styles. Even the title of the album originates in the fashion milieu. The phrase sport et divertissement was a widely used slogan designed to attract upmarket tourists to trendy resorts. And it can be found in advertisements for skiing and seaside vacations that were published in popular women's magazines in the 1910s and 20s. Satie took on this project, no doubt encouraged by the fact that he received 3,000 francs for the work. This was the largest payoff he had ever received for one of his compositions, and it lit a fire under him. He completed the entire thing between late March and early May, 1914. 
Sporlet Divertissement is extraordinary in almost every respect. The album makes its first impression as a luxurious collectible portfolio. It is oversized at 17 by 17 inches, covered in fine paper, backed by fly leaves extolling the virtues of, quote, love, the greatest of all games. Produced as an unbound folio, the album opens to reveal a stylized title page featuring an icon of leisure and fashionable decadence, a kind of modern odalisque. This image signals the work's feminizing subject matter. Each of the 20 pieces was given a title, linking it to a sport or contemporary pastime enjoyed by or identified with women, from real sports like swimming and playing tennis to social sports such as flirting, dancing the tango, and of course, swinging. And here you see the table of contents for the original work. A return to La Balançoire reveals more levels of complexity that characterize the entire work. The score, which you see here, was produced in lavish facsimile and clearly intended to be a piece of visual as well as musical art. The notation is dramatic and flowing with stylized notes uh, in red on black staves, which doesn't quite communicate here, much in the style of medieval manuscripts. No bar lines interrupt the visual effect. Look closely and you'll see a brief text inserted between the staves in Seti's elegant calligraphic hand. These words are purposefully placed on the page so that they may be easily read, but don't try to sing them or speak them. They don't coordinate at all with the musical notes. The narrative itself, written by Sati, like all the texts in the album, is a quirky vignette. And it goes like this. It's my heart that beats this way. It's not dizzy. What little feet it has. Will it want to return to my chest? Notice that, that's it. <laughs> Notice that unlike most piano pieces, this one is written on three staves, not two. Seti uses the bottom two staves, which would be played by the left hand at the piano, to create a graphic representation of a pendulum going back and forth. So as you heard, you, you also get the sense of that swinging going on in the music itself. What Satie's created here is something that's the very visual and oral image of the subject at hand. Now, in addition, there's that artwork proper to consider, to go back to this image. Created by one of Lucienne Vogel's top artists at the Gazette du Bon Ton, a man named Charles Martin, the illustrations that are matched to each of Satie's pieces evoke the themes with the same elegance and wit conveyed in the musical score. More important, they capture the spirit and often the exact look of contemporary fashions. For La Balançoire, Martin sets an open-air scene depicting a woman in a short dress with a high waist and flounces at the hem and sleeves, the ribbons of the sash tied under her bosom flowing behind as she swings. Although the woman's dress is perhaps too short for 1914 and is a bit stylized, it seems to me that he is suggesting some of the designs of the early 20th century couturier Paul Poiret with, and these are two designs by Poiret from a little earlier than this, but you see the same kind of high waist tubular skirt and the, the kind of sash around that high waistline. Martin's illustration further suggests a deeper intention in Sport et Divertissement, which is to create a resonance with the glorious French past. 
Key in this instance is the theme of the swinging woman, a trope in visual art that dates to antiquity, but stands as a touchstone of 18th century French painting, exemplified in Jean-Honoré Fragonard's famous canvas, La Balançoire of 1766, which is now in the Wallace Collection in London. Now an icon of Ancien Regime decadence and frivolity, this painting foregrounds the erotic charge of the swinging theme. As an older man at the right edge of the canvas pushes the woman on the swing, she soars out into the air with one shoe falling off while a young man crouched in the bushes at the lower left corner of the painting looks eagerly up her skirts. Martin's illustration reveals his awareness of swinging's erotic connotations and one can assume that he knew Fragonard's painting specifically. And just to go back to that for a second. Um, although there's no second suitor lurking in the bushes, the layout of the theme in Spore Divertissement is strikingly similar to Fragonard's, and rather than leave the shoe dangling from her foot, he adds a little more frisson by showing the swinging woman kicking apples off a tree, perhaps in an attempt to evoke Eve in the Garden of Eden. Spore et Divertissement, completed in the spring of 1914, was a casualty of World War I. It sat on a shelf until 1922, when art publishing finally began to resume in Paris. By that time, Martin's illustrations were out of date, both in terms of their style and the specific fashions that they depicted. So he created a second set of plates that were more of the moment. The change registered in the new illustrations is astonishing. And here is one of them. A softened kind of cubism, what would become known after 1925 as Art Deco, predominates. The themes are treated abstractly rather than literally, and the women, who in the original illustrations typically acted as elegant observers and onlookers, now take center stage as active and engaged participants. This is the new plate for La Balançoire, and you can see that the woman is no longer being pushed but stands assertively on a swing in a crowded beer garden. Notice that Martin has restored one of the original erotic conceits, adding a man at the left edge of the illustration who is positioned to look up her skirts. I guess you can kind of see him over here. Um, and there is also a man behind who is obscured by her dress and one can assume has quite a view from that angle. There is much more to say about every aspect of, these, of this work, but even a brief glimpse like this gives a hint of or suggests the delicious and somewhat literal decadence that lies below Satie's surface of simplicity. For if decadence itself is a kind of fall as suggested by the Latin root cadere, we can note three levels of relevant activity in the complex score. First, the fall from elevated culture into popular culture and an accessible style. Second, the fall into feminine culture from male-dominated art form of music composition. And third, a fall into magazine culture from the culture of the musical score. Just as Satie's nondescript suits disguised his radical artistry, so too did his stripped-down sound veil a truly decadent reimagining of music and its meanings. Thank you.